Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we aren't going to be quick to dismiss our emotions or shame ourselves for overreacting. Instead, we're going to listen to our bodies, recognize the sensations, and be thankful that acting on instinct is our brain's natural protection. Your mind is command central and in most cases is working for you, not against you. In certain situations, you have a heightened sense of awareness for a reason. Cause for pause isn't just a catchy slogan, but your brain's warning signal. Laughter, tears, shock, connection, joy, and peace are all delivering much-needed chemicals from your brain to your body at just the right moment. We can become overwhelmed, overstimulated, and overtired without reason, except to say, okay, I hear you. Thank you for always looking out for me. Before someone tells you to stop feeling a certain way or to start feeling a certain way, shouldn't you take the time to understand where your mind is coming from? Ready for a little mind-brain show-and-tell? I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by the brain. We have such complex emotions, thoughts, and reactions, it seems like our minds never shut off completely. Now, we could dwell on those moments where we find ourselves ruminating, worrying, or in a state of unnecessary panic over the past or the perceived future. But let's not. Let's try and understand how our brains protect us, how they trigger us to be aware, question, and reason. In 1784, philosopher Immanuel Kant penned a now-famous essay entitled, What is Enlightenment? He called out people's tendency to blindly follow thought leaders. If I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet, and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think. If I can only pay, others will take care of that disagreeable business for me. His thesis for the essay became a rallying cry for the era. Sapiri aure, dare to know. Have the courage to use your own understanding is therefore the motto of the Enlightenment. Today, I feel very led to think a certain way. Not because there has been some thoroughly researched revelation and I'm late to the party, but more of someone's ideas and opinions that spread and infect or impact large groups of people who adopt those same ideas and opinions as their own. At times, it feels like a tidal wave. Swim hard or get sucked down. What I want to say is, hey, wait a minute. Give me some time to sit with my feelings Explore more than one point of view and come together with my own thoughts. Then I might be ready to talk about it, see how my ideas match or differ from yours or theirs, his or hers. Does that sound reasonable? Let's look at why our mind behaves as it does, how our brains protect us, and what it means to be a free thinker. Caitlin Lance Hope gets us started on this exploration with being and feeling safe, what the brain's got to do with it. I found this at sfac.org. Our brains have one job, just one, to keep us alive. 
Keeping us alive is an incredibly complex job, so our clever brains do everything they can to streamline and simplify. This means they're constantly scanning our environments for threats. Notice how you automatically pay more attention to negative things than positive ones. This is why. When a threat is identified, an alarm is triggered in a little place in the middle of our brains called the amygdala. Amygdala acts like an alarm, shaped like an almond. It's time for our brains to leap into life-saving superhero mode. In superhero mode, brain shuts down anything not immediately necessary for keeping us alive in that moment, including the thinking and planning part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. Why does it do this? Because if you're about to step out into the path of an oncoming vehicle, nobody wants a detailed, carefully thought-out five-step action plan. You just want action. So the brain sends the thinking parts offline and kicks the instinct parts into action. Suddenly, before we can really know what's happening, we've jumped back out of the way of the car. This instinct part of our brain is incredibly clever, and in a split second, will decide what the best action is to ensure our survival. This could be anything from running away as fast as your legs will carry you, flight, or getting mad and tackling the danger head on, fight. Becoming totally still to avoid detection, freeze, or playing dead, faint. Here's where things can go a bit wrong. The brain isn't great at distinguishing between life-threatening situations and stressful or difficult situations. So the alarm response and instinct-based behaviors are just as likely to be triggered before giving an important speech as they are when you realize you're about to step on a poisonous snake. We all have the right to feel safe all the time. Anything about that sentence intrigue you? There's a really important word in there, and it's there for a reason. Notice that it says feel safe, not be safe. It turns out that just because we are safe physically doesn't mean we feel safe. And if the brain doesn't distinguish between the two, then our body is going to react the same way in both situations. It means that when we feel unsafe or threatened, the thinking part of our brain can go offline. Not ideal when we're about to head into an important exam or presentation. Here's a couple of examples to explain. A child who has just been removed from an abusive family situation and placed in a temporary accommodations might feel physically safe, but they probably don't feel safe in such an unfamiliar environment. This child might not act in particularly logical ways or thoughtful ways. Instinctual behaviors are likely. Think reluctance to engage and withdraw. Flight. Acting out, yelling, or destroying property, fight, or zoned out and hard to reach, freeze. One of the hardest things to understand is that being safe doesn't necessarily mean you feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, your behaviors and emotions will move towards an instinctive need to survive. Remember, the brain likes to simplify its complex job of keeping us alive as much as possible. One aspect of this is the brain is not a big fan of unfamiliar situations. There's too much unknown, too many potential threats, 
unfamiliar situations require the brain to do a lot of work to learn the new environment. It prefers you be in familiar situations and routines. For a woman who has left or is considering leaving an abusive relationship, the alternative might feel destabilizing and disorienting, feelings which generally align with feeling threatened and unsafe. Choosing a new partner who behaves in a similar manner to the old partner might mean she is again physically unsafe, but may also, at least temporarily, reduce how unsafe she's feeling. Putting in the work to sit with a discomfort or adjusting to safe but unfamiliar environments takes time and energy. It also requires a great deal of support and understanding from those around you. A new environment might mean we are safe, but it doesn't necessarily mean we feel safe. How would you describe or define safe? The absence of things like danger or harm? Words like calm, relaxed, and happy might also come up. After thinking about it a lot and taking the idea of feeling safe as well as being safe into consideration, I've arrived at my own definition of feeling safe. I feel safe when I believe a situation is within my capacity to cope. This definition acknowledges that safe, unsafe aren't necessarily a binary distinction. There's a lot of variation between feeling totally safe, free from danger and harm, and feeling completely relaxed, happy and calm, and feeling terrified and unsafe. While I'm within my capacity to cope, I might still feel fear and worry, and my brain might be starting to sound the alarm. But there are still enough elements I can control in my situation to make me think I can manage it. When we understand this distinction between being and feeling safe and how our brains and bodies respond to threat, it changes the way we see behavior, our own and others. This new perspective then changes the way we respond to behavior, and that has the power to completely transform a situation. There's a couple of things to keep in mind when thinking about being and feeling safe. Number one, what feels safe is different for everyone. I enjoy speaking to large groups of people. This might terrify you. On the other hand, I'm not a big fan of heights. They may not bother you in the slightest. Just because you feel safe doesn't mean that everyone else around you feels the same way. As a quick example, I can cope with injections and blood tests. I've had a lot over the years. I wouldn't say I like them, but they don't bother me and certainly don't make me feel unsafe. This is definitely not the case for Dan, who faints almost every time. He starts feeling woozy just at the mention of blood or needles. It's important to avoid making assumptions or judging someone based on what does or doesn't feel safe to them. Instead, we can consider how we might help others or ourselves move from the feeling of unsafe back towards feeling safe. What we have the capacity to cope with will also vary from person to person and even within individuals over time. Our life experiences, health, current situation, and access to basic needs all impact on our capacity for coping. Number two, this doesn't only apply to children. The brain works the same way in both adults and children, so the information applies to all of us. 
If we're developing systems designed to keep children safe, then a key consideration must also be ensuring those systems support the adults involved are safe too, both caregivers and professionals. Ideally, we want everyone to be safe and feel safe as both of these aspects of safety combined with a sense of belonging will provide the best foundation for which to thrive. To finish off, here are a few tips to help you or someone you're caring for move from feeling unsafe back to safe. Number one, choice. One way to help regain a sense of feeling safe is to look for choices. Often the opportunity to make small choices in a situation where we have little overall control can help. For example, if a child moves to a new family, the caregiver could ask them what meals they like to eat or let them choose their snack. It might be as simple as asking who they would like to accompany them when they leave the home or make their next move. Small warning, too much choice can actually increase feelings of being unsafe. Keep choices clear and within a framework of limited options. Number two, time limits. We're all so much better at coping with stressful or difficult situations when we know they're going to end. If I'm going through a particularly busy period at work, but I know that I have a holiday coming up and that things will calm down again soon, then the light at the end of the tunnel helps me keep going and increases my capacity to cope with a situation. Number three, safe people. This one is key. If you or someone you know is feeling unsafe, one of the easiest ways to bring them back towards feeling safe is through connection with a safe person in their life. A fascinating research study conducted in the USA in 2006 found women who were threatened with receiving a small electric shock showed less activation in their brains when their partner was holding their hand. Even holding the hand of a stranger reduced the activation compared with being on their own. When we're in the presence of someone we trust, we're likely to feel safer and our brains less reactive. I tried to tell my dad that my dramatic response to June bugs was in fact to protect myself and save my life. He didn't buy it, but chalked it up to yet another dramatic response. I know that June bugs are small. I'm not even really sure they bite. Hold on, I'm gonna research that. June bugs are harmless to humans and don't bite. I'm glad they added this part, but that's cold comfort to people who face nighttime airborne gauntlets of the beetles swarming around porch lights or lighted screen doors. No doubt. At any rate, my fight or flight response is both fight and then flight when any bug gets remotely close to me. But in all seriousness, I have both rational and irrational responses to things. I might squeal with delight or scream with fear. I might judge instinctively or be slow to respond while my brain figures things out. Should I feel bad for either or all? only if I act unreasonable based on those quick judgments. I'm not going to feel shame because my brain index pulls from past experiences to try to shape a quick response. But what I will do is continue to work on being self-aware and think for myself. Z. Herford teaches us how to think for yourself. Just some ideas, of course, found at EssentialLifeSkills.net. Do you think for yourself? Oh, to see the heads nodding right now. 
In times of fast media and ever-growing internet, we are under so many external influences that it can be difficult to know when we're thinking for ourselves. Unless you are discerning, very aware person, you most likely don't even know when your thinking is not your own. Not that all outside influence is bad or detrimental to forming your own views, but being unable to think for yourself can make you miserable at best or a puppet of someone else's programming at worst. Admittedly, we were all born into societies or cultures where the norms and customs are already established. For the most part, we have little choice but to conform to what is already in place. This is not necessarily a bad thing. However, it can be confining and controlling if we accept everything blindly and never question the status quo. Does this mean all of your ideas can be original and unlike anyone else's? Not at all. Nor does it require being contrary and argumentative just to be defiant or stand out. To think for yourself means that whatever opinions you hold will be well thought out and come from a position of thorough investigation and thoughtful analysis. It means choosing not to compromise the facts for the sake of consensus or fitting in. It's not unlike critical thinking. It just encompasses a broader scope of choices and decision-making in your life. As an example, how many of us feel the need to keep up with the latest? We wear clothes, listen to music, and follow trends that the media tells us we should in order to be cool. Marketing companies create ads that hypnotize us into herd mentality as we fall into debt, wearing fashions that are unbecoming and get caught up in a cycle of overspending, overconsuming, and then stressing out over it. Before we realize it, we're living lives designed for us by the powers that be and without our conscious participation. Another trap we fall into when we don't think for ourselves is groupthink. Groupthink, a term coined by Irving Janus in 1972, is a psychological phenomenon that takes place within a group of people who try to avoid conflict and reach agreement without critically evaluating options or alternative ideas. The problem with groupthink is that it hinders finding the best solutions, impedes creative ideas, and thwarts independent thinking. Wanting to be part of the crowd can certainly have its drawbacks. So, how can you cultivate the ability to think for yourself? Well, develop a strong sense of self. Know who you are, what you want, and what is best for you. Don't let others, especially marketing companies or the media, tell you how you should look, feel, or act. Be what is best for you. Cultivate your own tastes and enjoy your preferences. Be well-informed. Gather as much information about a subject as possible before forming an opinion. Build your mental resources by reading, observing, and listening to yourself. Then take time to reflect and evaluate. Be flexible. Look for solutions and outcomes to a situation from as many perspectives as you can. Determine the pros and cons. 
Are there other possibilities? Who might it harm or benefit? What are the potential consequences? Identify biases. Are you being unduly influenced by your culture, upbringing, or other people's opinions? Are you being fair and open-minded? Many times we make poor decisions because we begin with the wrong premise. If we take time to evaluate and judge based upon what we observe firsthand rather than what we've been led to believe, we can arrive at the appropriate and practical conclusion. Don't buckle under pressure, fear, or guilt. Have the courage to stand up for what you really believe and have deduced yourself. If you go along with the crowd for the sake of keeping peace, avoiding confrontation, or fear of failure, you do everyone a disservice, especially yourself. You may have a brilliant idea or maybe it happens to be the right thing to do. If no one hears about it, a healthy discussion can't take place and all possibilities will not be considered. A good idea has the potential to evolve into a better one with input from a variety of sources. So here are some benefits of thinking for yourself. You develop self-confidence and trust in your abilities. You attain a greater sense of accomplishment. You expand your mind and boost your brain power. You gain respect from others by standing up for what you believe in and by being original. You are more aware and alert to what the media is trying to sell you. You are more open to self-improvement and alternative points of view. You are more interesting to others by expanding their thinking and options. You are not thinking for yourself when you let others, the media, or conventions sway you from doing what is right for you. You buy into negative one-dimensional stereotypes based on sex, race, or culture. You do something because it's always the way it's been done, even if it no longer works. You follow old wives' tales, superstitions, or fallacies that defy common sense. You don't take time to think things through carefully and fully. As you may have concluded, thinking for yourself is not easy. It requires deliberate, mindful, and at times courageous application. However, the personal rewards are endlessly gratifying. In the words of John Stuart Mill, Truth gains more even by the errors of one who, with due study and preparation, thinks for himself than by the true opinions of those who only hold them because they do not suffer themselves to think. Oh, such a strong list, but I couldn't stop there. I found a few more ideas on this subject at aconsciousrethink.com. Number one, untangle your mind. Our current world creates tornadoes, unscrews the top of our heads, drops the tornadoes in like spinning tops, then screws our tops back on. Information bounces, spins, and twists around other bits so much it's a wonder we don't have apps to remind us of our own names. In order to think for ourselves, we have to be able to extricate all the tangled narratives and view each clearly before attempting to relate it to another. In other words, Click our heels three times and remember that our amazing individual brains are our homes. Before anything else screams our way for attention, remember that you are your baseline. You, which means news stations, politicians, memes, and a million tweets a day, 
don't get to tell you who you are. They're so far beneath the levels of what you're capable of thinking, and it's ludicrous they'd even attempt to impose themselves as surrogates for your own private, independent thoughts. Number two, find clarity. Be clear in why you're thinking XYZ before you wonder what more you might think. Clarity goes a long way towards shaking off unworthy, even harmful mental influences. If you're going to think of yourself, you need clarity as your shield. Listen. Listen carefully. Word choices are exactly that. Choices. In many cases, they're weapons. If a news broadcast is using combative words, they're doing so for a purpose. They want you to feel riled up. If a friend constantly demeans someone else to you, someone you very likely had no thoughts on one way or another, they're doing so for a reason. They don't want you to think. They want you to affirm their own notions. In many ways, thinking for yourself requires you to be a psychoanalyst. People say what they say to sway you, and not always toward beneficial or logical ends. Know when you're being manipulated. Paying attention to the whys that go hand in hand with the what's will go a long way in freeing your mental space for your own mind to roam. Number three, go silent. At least once a day, live disconnected for an hour. This may be difficult to achieve in one go. Try 15-minute pockets instead for a day where there's no phone, tablet, laptop, television, satellite, radio, book, ebook, or even a simple minor task. Simply be for 15 minutes. Some might even call this meditation. Might call it grounding. Might call it snatching a moment of the day. No matter its terminology, the effect is identical. Your brain gets a chance to actually have a private, one-on-one conversation about the world itself. That's a wonderfully empowering thing, something all brains need. Number four, say no. How often do you think about some facet of life, say immigrants coming to take our jobs, then stop yourself with a, no, that can't be right? Our brains are so hyper-stimulated. Oftentimes, we ourselves have no idea what we're thinking. We're just spouting what we've heard from a multitude of vague somewheres in order to keep up with the crowd. Say no to yourself on occasion. Reassert your individuality. Reassurance of individuality divorces significant portions of the mind from groupthink. Number five, recognize your addictions. If it seems we live in cultures constantly inventing new addictions, it's because we do. The human brain enjoys being pinged. You wouldn't think this predilection translates to thought patterns, but it does. Quite often, when we think we're forming thoughts and opinions, we're just taking hits of some particularly convenient mental drug. Social media is predicated on these addiction responses. See post, react, reply, click, repost, feel release. Some of us fuel these addictions so much they become our eyes upon the world. By recognizing what your thoughts feed you, 
you can begin to alter reactions and perceptions toward thinking for yourself. Number six, ask questions. This may seem obvious, but pause a moment to consider how often you actually question things. Probably about as often as telling yourself that something you've accepted as a given can't possibly be right. Humans get so comfortable in their assumptions and preconceived notions that something we used to do quite often as a child is now, in our dotage, nearly alien. Children ask questions and grow. Adults pretend they have answers, not questions, and stagnate. Number seven, develop patience. Thinking for yourself can take time, so let it. Number eight, develop you. A sense of identity goes a long way towards optimizing the brain's files and programs cognitively and emotionally. When you know who you are, you're able to weed out the bad data streaming amidst the valid. Pop culture, by its very definition, demands that it be recognized as the way to go. But pop culture is 99% marketing. And there's a saying that marketing will kill us all. Let your brain fire back only if I'm buying what you're selling. Number nine, be firm when needed. We don't need devils whispering in our ears. We have billboards. We have a staggering surplus of voices telling us to change our minds right now, not later, not after a period of consideration, right flippin' now. Don't think, be angry, don't think, feel sad, don't think. Watch in shock. Firmly push these debilitating messages aside. Tell the world you will not be rushed. Not in thought, not in judgment, not in temperament. Tell the world, thank you, but I will think for myself. Number 10, be willing to be wrong. A lot of non-thinking comes from not wanting to be wrong about things. But you will, you will be wrong. And that's okay. You know even computers lose at chess. Being wrong just means you're ready for new information, not that you're somehow defective. Admitting when you're wrong makes you less susceptible to being the pawn of mental grifters and charlatans. Number 11, expand your consciousness. This may sound hoodoo mysterious, but it quite literally and simply means increase what you're aware of. You'd be amazed what variety can accomplish in the brain's workings. Reading variety, situational variety, and especially cultural variety all open the mind to new ways of thinking via literally creating new neural pathways and connections in your physical brain. Variety and diversity rewire our brain to think vibrantly and anew. I love this topic, and in alignment with these ideas is to create space and time before a reaction. As we've already mentioned, There's this sense of urgency for now, immediate, draw a line, make a decision. If you succumb to that pressure, then you make a rash decision before you've had time to think and explore. Most importantly, sit with your own feelings. Hey, guess what? You're pretty smart and intuitive. You have strong opinions and good ideas. And even if you aren't compelled to share them or rather shout them to the world, they're still important. You have the freedom to be a free thinker. Remy Awicka gives us the 10 traits that make you a free thinker found at medium.com. 
Free thinkers are creative thinkers. They look at things from every perspective. They challenge their own conclusions. And layer by layer, they formulate their own opinions. They have an active, healthy mind as opposed to most people with lazy minds who accept what they're told without question and end up having their opinions dictated to them, never giving them any consideration. What do you spend your time thinking about? Do you learn something new every day? Or are your thoughts consumed by your routine? Are we free thinkers? Well, you're going to find out because here are 10 traits that can make you a free thinker. You're curious. How curious were you as a child? What happened? One of the biggest blunders adults face is that they stop learning. Sure, you might be doing all those trainings your company signed you up for, but how much do you enjoy them? How much do you learn from them? Is this the information you're passionate about? We are all born curious, but that curiosity needs to be fed to stay strong. The two most important questions to keep you curious are how and why. The why explains the reasons for existing and the how explains the functionality. Asking these two questions repeatedly throws you in a limitless rabbit hole of ideas. Each step brings you more knowledge, and the deeper you go, the better understanding you'll have. Your job is not your life. How often do you complain about your job? When you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror? Are you mentally prepared for the day to end before it even begins? The 9 to 5 we're prepared for never ends at 5. You live for the weekend and even those are taken away from you. You spend your evenings thinking about your day's struggles and the ones to come tomorrow. Valuing money isn't a lesson you're taught in school. You're fooled to believe that you can measure an individual's success by the zeros in their bank account. What sacrifices did they have to make along the way? Countless hours taking crap from bosses for years until the day comes when they're the same boss giving crap to their team. Money is at the center of our society and it blinds us from what it's meant for. If you can get rid of half your belongings, why don't you? You listen more than you speak. Loud people are loud because they're compensating for their low self-confidence. Some people will compensate that with material possessions, a faster car, a bigger house, a yacht. Quiet people are busy thinking. They listen to what others say, read their body language, and formulate meaningful and often wise words. Less is always more. You don't argue, you debate. Disagreeing with each other is normal. Even the closest friends will have differing opinions. Conversations and debates turn into arguments when we fortify our opinions and refuse to listen to others. If you place your ego at the forefront of the conversation, it will blind you from considering anyone else's opinion. Free thinkers consider an opposing view before questioning it or giving their own. They know when to speak and when to listen. They know that some debates are not worth their time. You can tell from the first few minutes if the conversation is heading anywhere or if you'll sit there tirelessly defending your opinions. You are creative. 
Having a creative mind means you use different areas of your brain along with knowledge from various sources to understand and explain things. When you're faced with an obstacle, do you consider one solution or 10? Do you think one step ahead or three? Thinking about all possible outcomes and different solutions gives you self-control. Prepare for every eventually so that nothing will ever surprise you. Yes, you can make your own luck. You are weird. If you've been called one, take it as a compliment. The best people are. Remember that 1% of people make it, and surprise, surprise, you have to be labeled different to fall into that category. Being seen as strange only works for your advantage if you embrace your differences and try to understand them. Are you called weird because others don't understand you or because you don't understand others? Free thinkers are empathetic people. They put themselves in other people's shoes, consider all the aspects that make up their own thoughts. You know a lot more than others. To be a free thinker, you need to know a lot. Experts become experts because they take their time to learn and master their craft. Many of us live in our own bubble, consider ourselves the center of the world, and neglect everyone else's struggles. The more aware you are of all the things you are unaware of, the clearer the world gets. You consume media differently. If you start off your day reading the news, you're more likely to indulge in negative thoughts throughout the day. The news focuses on what's bad instead of good. On the main page, you'll see disease, war, and death. On the last page, cartoons, jokes, puzzles, and entertainment. Media has shaped much of what we think of the world. But have you ever thought of how accurate everything you see is? Is that what an Irish accent sounds like? Are all people in Africa living in poverty? Are Arabs terrorists? Is socialism bad? You think you've seen the world through a screen, but you haven't. We quickly formulate opinions on others based on what we know from these sources. And if you've traveled around, you'll know that things are very different. You don't pay attention to brands and labels. Marketing, marketing, marketing. It shapes the world we live in. Much of it is merely a game of psychology. Ever since the late 1800s, when mental health sparked curiosity among scientists, we've learned a fair deal about the human mind. But knowing our weaknesses, control is always our first thought before fully understanding what we're dealing with. Being a good marketer is more about understanding human psychology. The same can be said about salespeople. They learn how to create value in a person's mind they haven't noticed before, even if the value is entirely made up. Does it matter what brand your watch is when they all tell the same time? Does a $500 pair of shoes make you walk better than a $20 pair? Eh, sometimes. What's the point of having a supercar when we're both adhering to the same speed limits? Be a free thinker and don't accept everything you hear as truth. Be critical, evaluate what you believe in. Aristotle. If you're expecting a straightforward guide to becoming a free thinker, I can spare you the suspense and tell you that there isn't one. What I can leave you with is a series of questions to get you started. Answering them honestly, I leave that entirely up to you. Number one, question your daily habits. 
What do you look like? How do you speak? How do you behave in public? Number two, when formulating an opinion, do you consider all available facts or stick to the ones you know? Number three, why do you love or hate certain things? What are the reasons? Number four, if you're religious, do you practice that religion you were given at birth or did you research all existing ones and choose the one you thought was best? Number five, are you a fan of pulp culture? Do you consume what is popular at the time? Does your taste change as trends change? Number six, do you join a political or national cause because you truly believe in it or because you want to be part of a group? Number seven, what content are you consuming? Do you read diverse books and articles and question them afterwards? Number eight, if a piece of art, movie, or book influences you, do you think about it for yourself, discuss it with a friend, or do you check online reviews first? Number nine, have you ever thought of the world from someone else's perspective? Number 10, Do you think you have been conditioned since childhood to behave and be a certain way by your parents, your teachers, in the media? Number 11, are you living a script written for you by others? If you want to share Encouragement Mentology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit EncourageMentology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, be informed, be inspired, be educated, but don't be led to make your mind up before you're ready. Your thoughts and opinions are valuable and should never be discounted. Take your time. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone threw until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I wound up here.